Hey folks, welcome back to the Inside Line F1 podcast. And it's that time of the year once again where Formula One returns to the USA. And luckily for us, it's two races in a calendar year, which makes it extra special. And this time we're back at somewhat, I wouldn't call it the home of Formula One in the US, but because we've been here for a decade now, it almost really does feel like home. We're going to be back at the Circuit of the Americas. And to talk about the race this weekend, I am so grateful that we have Mr. Bob Varsha on the show once again. We had him the last time for the USGP in Miami. It's great to have you once again, sir. And heading into this weekend, there's a weird sense of, I wouldn't say boredom around it, but there's this weird feeling that, okay, now that the World Drivers' Championship has been wrapped up, just what do we look forward to the most? And I want to get your take on that. But firstly, for all of our listeners, how are you doing, sir? How have you been keeping in the last couple of months? Well, it's great to be with you again, Sumil, and I'm doing well. I'm proud and happy to say that my cancer's in remission and the doctors are optimistic, so so am I. But I would still reiterate to all of the men in my age group and even younger out there to get yourself checked for prostate cancer because it's a lot more common than people let on. And it's uh, even more lethal than breast cancer, which gets all the publicity. Go out there, get checked, find a good urologist and be well. That's great to hear that you're doing extremely fine, sir. That's amazing. But I, I, you've Thank been you. also consistently working on on your on your show as well, the radio show, where when you go to the service mm-hmm. to talk about Formula One. And as I yep. discussed with you before we went recording, you are going to be at the circuit this this weekend. So that that yes. is a fantastic thing as well. What excites you the most about this weekend? Well, you know, I've always thought that sports are best when they're live, when you're actually at the place. You know, it's great that television and radio and newspapers and what have you can bring the event to the people after the fact or even during the race itself. But there's still nothing like being at the event. We know that last year, Circuit of the Americas and the United States Grand Prix produced an extraordinary crowd, close to 400,000 people over the three days. From what I'm hearing in Austin, they expect to break that record this year. They've prepared for it for some degree to handle that kind of a crowd. Of course, access and egress at Circuit of the Americas has always been a real all-day soccer, as it were. But I'm, I'm just really excited about it because Formula One has gotten so popular here in the United States uh, across so many different demographic groups that it's, um, you know, that it's exciting to see. And Austin gets its arms around the race in a way that a lot of cities around the world that host Formula One can't do it. I mean, the Belgian Grand Prix is out in the middle of the Ardennes Forest, so there's not a town that can really um, add the sort of restaurants and hotels and clubs and excite that Austin can. I mean, the motto at Austin is keep Austin weird, and they do a great job of that on the Formula One weekend. So, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I don't get to the racetrack often, but this is going to be fun. And I find it remarkable that... This time, there's going to be an even bigger crowd than last time, which seemed like probably one of the biggest crowds we've ever had for Formula One. But is it a bit of a shame that the title has been wrapped up before we get to Austin? Because last year, the context was outstanding. Verstappen Hamilton in the middle of a fight. People are out there to witness it. This time, of course, less so. But will that really dampen the excitement heading into the race? Perhaps for a certain portion of the fan base, it might. But of course, those people probably acquired their tickets a long time ago. So what are you going to do? Tear them up? No, you're going to go to the race, hopefully. And for the more informed fans, let's say, there's still so much to be decided. The Constructors title is still up for grabs. There's a great midfield battle between McLaren and Alpine. You know, we've yet to see how Mercedes, with their incredibly reluctant and troublesome race car this year, 
will react as Circuit of the Americas. I'm convinced that they still want to win a race before the end of the year, and they'll pull out all the stops to do that. We're going to see some terrific young talent in free practice one on Friday morning. Young American F2 star Logan Sargent will be in the Williams. Pietro Fittipaldi, who has a dual American-Brazilian citizenship and a great family name, will be in the uh, Paz. And there are others as well. The uh, Alex Below, the Spaniard, who won last year's NTT IndyCar Championship, uh, will be in a car. So that's going to be exciting. And of course, it's our, our last chance to wave goodbye to Sebastian Vettel and uh, who knows who else, perhaps Mick Schumacher, which would be unfortunate because I think his name, totally aside from the results, I think Mick Schumacher's name carries such cachet with the American fans who just adored Michael Schumacher, man and boy. So there, there's so much going on in Austin. And then there's Austin itself, great musical entertainment, so much to see and do. It's going to be a great weekend. And I don't think it'll dent the turnout at all. I'd be very surprised if it did. Yeah, exactly. And I just actually want to start by talking about FP1, because you mentioned such mm -hmm. a great point. We've got, of course, Fittipaldi and local sergeant is going to get his first taste. If I'm not mistaken, Theo Pocher is also going to be driving the Sauber, which is incredible. But yeah. I'm really confused about the subject of Alex Palou because, yes, he won the IndyCar Championship last year with Chip Ganassi. We all know about the fallout that he had with McLaren and then Ganassi as well. And then, to cut a long story short, essentially, he's going to be racing with Ganassi again for next year. But he's going to be driving a McLaren right now at the Circuit of the Americas. How hard is it to explain to a casual viewer? And this one you look forward to the most in terms of his test because he has had a couple of runs previously in the 2021 mm -hmm. McLaren car. But this is just yep. quite something else for him. It is. And I don't have any problem with it whatsoever. I don't know if Chip does or not, but Chip sees the big picture. He's got this terrific talent back in his car for next year. I don't think, although I don't know what happened to the countersuit that he filed against Alex Pelot. I assume all that went away when it became clear that Pelot did not have a seat in Formula One next year. And so he came back knocked on Chip's door and they're back together again for next year. So I'm going to assume that Chip wouldn't have rehired him if he didn't think they could do great things together. Having said that, it's clear that every young driver, particularly those born in other countries for whom Formula One was simply day in, day out, enchantment, let's call it, you know, they, their goal is Formula One. And I'm sure, you know, you could walk up and down the pit lane at the, uh, at the IndyCar races and say, okay, who wants to go to Formula One? And you could fill up a bus in a hurry because, you know, it's just the nature of the beast. The IndyCar series is fun. It's great competition, spectacular on the ovals. But, you know, Formula One is a separate level altogether. So I'm sure it's no surprise to Chip that Alex Pelot wanted to go there. And so, you know, they'll be back together next year and Pelot will keep hammering on the door of Formula One until he uh, hopefully gets there because he's a terrific young driver. And for all of our listeners who haven't quite had the taste of Palou by watching Indica, just how good is he? Just what can he bring to the table? Obviously, it's hard to really look at it from the bigger picture right now because it's just an FP1 run. And we know that McLaren have contracted drivers for the next few years. But just what could he bring on the table along with, say, the likes of Theo Pocher as well, who's getting his first chance? And let's not forget Logan Sargent, a home name in yep. Austin and who's already yep. doing pretty decent things in the feeder series. And I'm thinking of Felipe Drugovich as well, who came to the sport. He's got no money. He's got no affiliation with any constructor, but he's got a reserve role for next year. And I think that's terrific because he's another great young driver. 
you know, what these guys will bring is new blood, I guess you would say, you know, a new attitude, a new glimpse into what it takes to be a terrific Formula One driver. I mean, obviously the teams have confidence in these guys or they wouldn't be putting them in the race cars. It'll be fun to see where they measure up against the established stars. I'm, I'm trying to think as I'm speaking, I don't know if Logan, Logan Sargent has had a run. I'm sure he's tested an older William, but I don't know if he's been in the 2022 car this year. I think Pietro Fittipaldi has. I don't think Palo has. So, you know, it's going to be interesting. There's a lot that goes on in these cars. I was looking at video of, of uh, Mario Andretti, who's getting into an old McLaren, but I mean a contemporary McLaren hybrid race car at WeatherTech Raceway at a vintage event. Mario's going to drive a contemporary McLaren. And I'm sure he sat down in that car and took one, one look at that steering wheel and thought, holy smokes, what have I gotten myself into? But he's Mario Andretti, so he'll be just fine, I'm sure. And so I think in the same way, but at the other end of the spectrum, that's what these young guys bring in. We know about Mario. We know he can drive, but we don't know what these kids can do. Formula Two is a tough road to hoe. They've done well. And, um, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll, they'll bring new flash to the series. I think it's fair to say that there aren't many drivers, and I have to be careful about how I say this, who are buying their way into Formula One. That's not unusual. It's happened throughout the history of the sport. But right now, I think the teams up and down the pit lane are in a financial situation that will allow them to hire whomever they want. And I think that's a critical difference from some previous years. I mean, even Haas is rumored to be getting ready to announce a major new title sponsor for the team. So these are good days for Formula One right now. And hopefully we'll see that reflected on the racetrack. That's so true. And on the subject of what makes teams at a more level playing field and at a more healthier financial field is the budget mm -hmm. cap. And recently there's been rumors or now that the FIA has confirmed it, an actual breach in spending by Red Bull Racing. And we mm -hmm. haven't had any consequences announced so far, obviously. I mean, according yeah. to them, it's just a minus spend. And but by the calculations, it could be something under $7.5 million, which when you consider it, is still, still a sizable amount of money. Now, we oh, don't yeah. know if it's actually been spent on catering as the entire internet thinks about it. But what do you think should be the penalty for that? Because I suppose it's the biggest off-track story that we have got going right now in Formula One. Yeah, it is. And that's unfortunate because it should be about what's going on on the track. But, you know, I've always thought since this cost cap was instituted, that it's going to be a terribly difficult thing to police. As most people know, it was $145 million last year. It's $140 million this year. But that does not include driver salaries and the salaries of the top three management people in your organization, plus a lot of other different things. So to me, and maybe it's my legal background, I can just see it would be pretty easy to give someone like a team principal a big boost in his salary, which isn't included under the cost cap, which somehow finds its way back into the, into the team's bank account to develop some new bits for the car. And another of the challenges is that the, an overspend last year may have created a competitive advantage in terms of new parts and new technologies on the car. And that's going to continue going forward because a lot of this stuff is homologated. So, you know, let's just use blunt words. If they cheated last year, they're going to keep getting the benefits of that cheating going forward. How do you police that? How do you know what they spent the money on? Lewis Hamilton said this year that Mercedes was investigating an improvement to the underfloor of the car, which is everything in terms of producing downforce on these cars this year. And he said, we were going to run up against the cap, so we didn't do it. 
So when you hear that Red Bull may have spent up to seven and a half million dollars over the cap, you can see that that can lead to some real competitive advantages. And then there's the procedural violation that Aston Martin went through. And I'm still not quite clear what's a procedural. We're using monopoly money or something. They didn't send their forms in in time. I don't know what it is. And it'll all come come clear in time. But, you know, I, I suppose it'd be fun to be a fly on the wall as the forensic accountants working for the CIA are going through line item by line item and the team budgets and what they spent things on and who the money went to and all that kind of thing. And someday a great book will be written about it. But fortunately, I'm not going to write that book. I think it's probably going to be 30, 40 years afterwards where we actually get to know what really happened. That's right. Right. <laughs> 10 years after everybody is gone. <laughs> and the strange part is the FIA aren't even transparent about how much Red Bull Racing was spent on. And that's got yeah. me curious because, as you rightly mentioned, the benefits carry on. Now, we don't know where that money has been spent on, but let's just assume it has been spent on designing if according to a 2022 car, the underflow. Let's say they found a massive performance benefit in that case. Now, is how do you define a serious violation or not? Because ideally, if you've cheated, then and Toto Wolf has an argument of saying, well, if you've cheated, you should not qualify for your championship titles. And it's a shame we're discussing all of this, but how do you look at it that way? I mean, should they be stripped off from the title? That that's too big a thing to do, but surely that'll set an example, no? Well, yeah, I mean, I can see the argument at least. And if it was a major overspend, you know, if they spent $25 million or something, or if they were found to have manipulated the various stipulations of the rule about what you can spend your money on. And they, to, to use the example I just said, of give somebody a big raise and find that money filtering back into the team's operational budget, that would call for a, a serious penalty. And I have to assume the FIA powers that be have considered these things. You know, what are the penalties going to be? A sliding scale is difficult, but you know who knows if this you know nut or bolt is more important to the car than that rear wing or whatever. So it, it's a huge undertaking, and uh, I don't envy the FIA the job of laying out penalties here. You know, the countervailing argument might be, well, this is the first year of these new cars, and budgeting was difficult, and inflation ran rampant, and suddenly teams were busting their budget for transporting equipment to race sites because everything got so expensive. So I suspect there's a lot of negotiation going on, and it'll be interesting just to hear, to hear what the FIA decides is important. Transparency, first of all. Everybody remembers 2019 when Ferrari and the FIA did a special deal regarding why their engines were suddenly so powerful, and nobody wants to see that again. It'll be interesting to see what comes out the other end of a negotiation over what was spent, what it was spent on, and what's appropriate considering the uh, the facts of the situation. And I, I honestly have no clue. I hope it doesn't overshadow another Max Verstappen masterclass because seriously, so far this year, yeah. he's been amazing. And <clears throat> I think the one thing that all the audiences at the Circuit of the Americas wouldn't want to see is another dominating race because yes, we, we all love Max doing what he's doing. It's kind of Schumacher-esque, isn't it? That he's winning so many races sure. in a year. But yep. it'll be so much fun to see a race this time. And and do you reckon we, we could potentially see a race? Because generally, ever since, what is it, the last time we spoke, a Monaco that was, we haven't really had a fight per se, have we? No, not much of one. We've had some interesting situations, including the, uh, the rain in Japan and so forth. But now it's been interesting. And, you know, in the 
clear light of day, let's assume there is no no shenanigans going on. What Red Bull and Max Verstappen have done this year, and Checo Perez for that matter, is is extraordinary. Remember, back in the beginning of the year at Bahrain and Australia and places like that, they weren't very good. You know, Verstappen scored minimal, if any, points over the first three races, and Charles Leclerc and Ferrari were disappearing up the road. Red Bull and uh, and particularly Verstappen were able to turn that around. They had some rough races along the way, but you know, sooner than later, they came forward and won a string of races in a row. Max is up to what, 12 race victories now. One more will tie the all-time Formula One record done by Michael Schumacher once, I think, and Lewis Hamilton twice. And that's the realm in which I like to think we see Verstappen. He is among the Hamiltons and the Schumachers and the Senna's and Prost's and Jackie Stewart's and, and, and what have you. I used to say all the time, and I may have said before on your podcast, that when, we were, when I was covering Formula One and Michael Schumacher and Ferrari were dominating, we were hearing all these complaints about, oh, the same guy always wins. You know, there's a reason the same guy was always winning. And it wasn't just him. You know, it was everybody in the factory. It was everybody in the pits. It was the team management. It was the strategists. And Verstappen has benefited from some extremely good strategy this year. You know, it's the whole package. And I predicted on the air back then that, you know, we complain about it now, but someday we're going to want to say, I saw Michael Schumacher at the peak of his powers. I saw Lewis Hamilton at the peak of his powers or Senna or Prost or Mansell or, you know, whoever it might be. So, you know, I take it race to race, to use the old cliche. And, and wonder, you know, what's going to happen next? What, is, is Max going to qualify at the back? Is he going to change engines? Is he going to have to come through the field as he's done three times this year? Is somebody else going to leap forward? Is Mercedes going to conquer their problems and get that one win, which I think in the eyes of many people at Mercedes would be bigger than the seasons they've had in the last seven where they swept the titles. If they can come back from this very reluctant race car and win a race, I mean, that's something you're going to want to be there to say you saw. So, you know, as I say, there's so much going on that makes Formula One fascinating. Now, I don't, I don't see Verstappen's continuing ability to come out on top as any kind of a minus for the series. And what's surprising because of his dominance is that Charles Leclerc, who, as you rightly mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, was almost poised to win the championship by the start of the year, is now on the verge of losing second. Now, how do you look at this yeah. battle? Because Sergio Perez has come clawing back in the last couple of races. Firstly, that win in yep. Singapore, then that amazing drive in Japan to force that error out of Leclerc on the final lap. And yep. last year as well, Perez was pretty handy right here at, at the Circuit of the Americas. I am just very mm -hmm. keen to see how that battle plays out as well, because suddenly we, we do have a fight for P2, and that could be the big story for this weekend. Sure, absolutely. And there are other positions up and down the the championship trail that are up there. Some guys, as inevitably happens at this time of year, are driving for their careers. They're auditioning for better rides. They're doing all the things that happens in all forms of motorsport. But I know one group that is especially going to be cheering for Checo Perez this weekend, and that's the promoter of the Mexican Grand Prix coming up in a couple of weeks, because they're going to want to pack that place. I'm so impressed with the Mexicans and their passion for motorsports. You know, that Hermanos Rodriguez Stadium in Mexico City is just going to rock, no matter who wins in Austin. And no matter what the series as well is, because even for the Formula yeah. E races over there, the crowds mm -hmm. were massive. I mean, I'm sure you, you can tell yeah. firsthand over there, because we've got so many people, I think over 100,000, and that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it truly is.
And with that, you mentioned such a great point about drivers who are driving for their careers. We've got Mick mm-hmm. Schumacher, who's one of them. Obviously, we mm-hmm. know that Nicholas Latifi's career is unfortunately coming to an end in Formula One. Unfortunate right. for him, fortunate perhaps for the poor pieces of carbon fiber that don't have to bear the brunt anymore. But who, which other driver do you think will be in the spotlight this weekend? Because you mentioned Mick Schumacher, you mentioned the weightage of his name. I think he's literally driving mm-hmm. for his career right now. I mean, poor, poor guys, what is he, 21? And he's in this tough spot already. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a fact of sporting life, not just motorsports life, much less Formula One life. You know, you're as good as your last race and you know, everybody has a different level of talent and resourcefulness and, and whatever the combination of personal assets it takes to be a successful Formula One driver. And some guys just sort of plateau at a certain level and they can't rise any farther. And I think Mick Schumacher may be one of those guys. He was good enough to get into Formula One, but not good enough to succeed at it, to put up the kind of results. Granted, he's in the, in, uh, in the Haas, which is not the best weapon on the grid, but maybe he's just overdriving the car to try to keep up with his teammate, Kevin Magnuson. He's crashed a lot for a team that doesn't have a big crash budget. Um, so, you know, maybe he's reached the end. The case I often refer to is Jack Villeneuve, the 97 world champion. He raced with moderate success in Formula 3 in Europe, and he came to North America, you know, since he is Canadian, and raced in the Atlantic Series, where he was in a great team, teamed with a charismatic guy um, whose name just went right out of my head. Oh, come on, I can see him. Anyway, he had a terrific teammate who was well-groomed, multilingual, good looks, fast, everything. Well, Jacques, I'd have to say, in fact, my partner David Hobbs privately used to call him Ratbag, because he had hair down to his shoulders and he would only speak French. He only wanted to talk about rock and roll. And he had ripped jeans and T-shirts and stuff like that on. Not exactly the picture of the international racing star, but he was Claude Bourbonnet was his teammate. And they uh, and they raced, you know, close. In fact, they took points off of each other so that a guy named David Emperingham came through and took the championship. But along during that season, Jerry Forsyth, who was his team owner, also had a champ car team and they tested their drivers in this car. And Villeneuve blew everybody away. You know, as the machinery got fiercer and fiercer, Villeneuve kept excelling and excelling. And then, of course, he went on and won the Indianapolis 500 for two, from two laps down without the benefit of a safety car or a yellow flag. And then he went on and took pole for his first Formula One race for Williams in Australia. And then the year after that, he took uh, the world championship. So, you know, there can be a guy who is not exactly much more than a wallflower in a lower level development series, and then suddenly just blossoms into this superstar. And that's part of the fun too, is you watch these guys kind of come into their own or, you know, peter out at a certain level. And Formula One is the end of the road. I mean, this is, it's not a finishing school. This is where the guys are supposed to come fully formed. Some do, some find out they they maybe just don't have it. Doesn't mean they can't be successful doing something else, sports cars, whatever, but, you know, the sad fact is not everybody is equally talented and not everybody can leverage that talent and all the other things it takes to be successful into a world championship. Actually, this has just opened the door for such an interesting topic because you mentioned it so correctly. Formula One is not a finishing school and the drivers need to be ready and precise when they get there. And some mm-hmm. really do take the long route, as is the case with Nick DeVries. I just want to get your take on him because this is someone who's actually become the first driver to properly do Formula E 
and then mm-hmm. come from there and earn his way into an F1 seat. Not like Formula E as a stopgap. He actually went in there and became the world champion, then gets mm-hmm. back to Formula 1, delivers. And is this the new modern-day motorsport um, an underdog story? You could call it this way because it seems too good to be true in a way. Yeah, it is kind of a Cinderella story. And, and it, of course, blows all of these expensive and carefully structured junior training pipelines <laughs> all to hell because you know why are we spending all this money trying to find the next superstar when he may be racing somewhere else i could never understand why nick devries once i got to to meet him in formula e you know why why isn't this guy who's like 27 28 years old now why has he not had a sniff of formula one i mean he's terrific won the fe world championship as you mentioned gets a call on the Saturday morning or Friday night to to jump in a different race car than he was racing that weekend. And he goes out and, and scores points on debut. And all of a sudden, everybody says, wow, look at this, this is Nick DeVries. You know, how did we not notice this before? And of course, he gets snapped up once they could shuffle guys around and find a place for him. So, yeah, he's a he's a terrific guy. And he puts the lie to the fact that you need to bring these kids up carefully through all kinds of, you know, training programs, look around. There are guys out there with the ability and the skill and the desire. If they just get the opportunity, I think DeVries is a great story. We had Peter Winsor on our show last week, and he said that this situation wouldn't have happened if teams actually spend time analyzing the way drivers drive, because a lot of the teams he claims that they aren't quite aware of how people are doing things and what is their driving style? How do they approach it? So they usually just rely on, let's say things like the shootout or weird metrics like, oh, how did they perform in their last season when circumstances right. are to be considered, like which team were they a part of, or for instance, how well does the car suit them? Or what sort of budget do they bring at the table? You think this could be avoided as well? Because now we're facing a time where many people enter Formula One, but they just seem out of place. We've seen Yuki Tsunoda be an example of that. We've seen Mick Schumacher now be an example of that. We're not quite sure how Nick DeVries might end up panning out eventually, but we are increasingly yeah. seeing drivers out of their depth in a way. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, isolating talent, picking future stars is not something that's easy to do. And we have seen in Formula One and elsewhere teams or team principals or whoever it is who can spot these things. Thinking of Peter Sauber, who, uh, you know, owned the, the Sauber team that became Alfa Romeo and uh, had great success before getting to Formula One with his sports car teams and whatnot. He had a tremendous ability to spot new talent. He put Kimi Raikkonen into a Formula One Sauber after Raikkonen had come from karts and done like less than two dozen races in full-size car, less than two dozen races. And he said, okay, let's put this guy in a Formula One car and the, you know, the rest is history. So sometimes it's just luck, you know, a pig finds a truffle, or sometimes, you know, it's that ability to locate that factor, to focus on what you were just talking about. I mean, all of the things together, you know, how well did he do in the context of what he had available to him? Did he overachieve? Did he, uh, you know, does he provide good feedback? Does he relate to the car or does he set up the car so it relates to him? We, We hear all the time about drivers who, can be really fast in a race car, but if the race car is badly set up, they don't know how to make it a better car. And then you get guys like the aforementioned Michael Schumacher, who were just superb at setting up their car. And we see drivers in in IndyCar, and I won't get into who, but there are drivers who set up cars for their teammates because they have you know an acute sense of what it takes to do it. So yeah, it's it's 
I suppose there's a place for elaborate junior driver programs if you don't have somebody who can look and say, okay, that guy and that girl or whoever it is, let's put them in the car. If for no other reason, then it simply opens up the opportunity to gather more information on these people. I mean, we are time and again, nobody's ready. You know, a Red Bull was talking about putting Colton Herta in a car because they don't have anybody in their extensive junior program who they think is ready for Formula One right now. And I thought that was extraordinary. But, you know, that appears to be the case or somebody is blowing smoke. But one way or another, yeah, it's a it's a unique skill to locate tomorrow's talent. Hang on. I, I just love that you're able to bring out so many fun nuggets because I almost forgotten about Colton Herder for a second because a couple of months ago, that was the big story. Colton Herder to Formula One. Is he going to be in the Alpha Tauri? And then the way the FIA dealt with super license points. Do you think that was disrespectful to American motorsport because they haven't well, valued it so. enough? No? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. But that's been in place forever. American drivers, by and large, around the world are underestimated, undervalued, considered, I don't know, soft or mama's boys or whatever. They don't mean to be insulting, but Ron Dennis, the longtime and super successful McLaren team principal, used to describe the United States as the world's largest island, you know, because we didn't, we did our own thing and we had our own motorsports. We didn't get involved in world endurance, much less Formula One or MotoGP or all that kind of stuff with a few notable exceptions. But The point was Americans don't value Formula One. They don't want to come over. They don't want to live in the little towns where the factories are. They don't want to mix it up with the teams. When Michael Andretti went to McLaren for his less than one season, I I saw him at a race and I asked him why he was flying back and forth between the United States and, and Europe for the races. And he said, because his father did. And Mario did that because Mario had a full racing schedule over here and everything down to dirt sprint cars, as well as the Indy 500. But he also had the benefit of the Concorde and he could go back and forth in two and a half hours. But Michael didn't want to live near the factory, wanted to sleep in his own bed at night. And I said, well, you know what, don't you want to know the innards of the car? Don't you want to be in it as much as as possible? And he said, they have my number, you know, and the rest, as they say, was history. And And it all went sour. And I think that's the the critical thing that they want from American drivers. They want them to come over, race against the young Europeans and Asians and and what have you. And American drivers didn't do much of that. And then you had the case of great American drivers who were turned away. Rick Mears tested a Brabham alongside Nelson Piquet. And Piquet barred Mears from being hired by the team, to hear Rick tell it. You know, Jeff Gordon tested for Williams, decided not to do that. There's Al Unzer Jr. tested and decided not to do that. I mean, you can understand guys with families and, you know, a comfortable lifestyle here in the United States want to be close to that. And then maybe the, the, the siren sounds of Formula One don't speak as loudly to them. Um, but I think we're seeing a change in that. I think there are youngsters who are, who are ready to go do whatever it takes to get to Formula One. And maybe that'll change. But my basic point is that they don't have the respect that I think American drivers deserve right now. The case in point with the NDT IndyCar series, you know, scoring as many super license points as Formula Two over in Europe is, is absurd. It's just crazy, but that's the way it is. And unless they look at the rule and change it and a top three or five point scorer in IndyCar, sure as hell should have uh, an FIA super license. You know, they should have 
the uh, golden ticket to go whatever form of motorsport they want to around the world because these are clearly superior talents, but not always perceived that way. Yeah, such a shame that that happens. Yeah, it is. Now, the one last thing that we want to talk about today for the USGP preview is what makes Austin so special. It's so hard to believe it, but it's been 10 years since we've had this circuit on the calendar. Just what are your favorite memories? And for anyone going to this race, just like you are, what would you recommend them to do? Because as you mentioned earlier on, there's just so much in and around Austin. and There must be so much in Mm -hmm. and around the circuit as well to do. Sure. Well, not so much the circuit. Uh, it's it's pretty quiet out there, but it is sufficiently close to Austin that uh, you can go back and forth without problems each day. And it must be said, all of the hotels, all of the nice ones, are downtown. So you really want to go there, but you want to be there anyway. They do a street festival, fantastic restaurants, beautiful the river, the Colorado River coming through town, Ladybird Lake. And one of my favorite things to do is to go out one evening at sunset and stand under the Commerce Street Bridge over the Colorado River and watch the bats come out, the fruit bats that come out by their millions at sunset. They fly off into the countryside and and feed on insects out in the farm fields and whatnot. But it is just this unending cloud of bats that that fly out and it's very appropriate it's coming close to halloween i suppose but i do that almost every time i go now if you want to do it high end you go to one of the hotels that has a a nice uh uh, balcony overlooking the river and grab yourself a gin and tonic or something and watch the bats from there but you don't quite get the effect as they come out squealing and flapping and all that kind of thing and and you you can't miss it because there'll be a big crowd there with you watching it so that's you know one of the weird things to do in austin which as we said earlier, prides itself on being weird. You know, go down to Sixth Street and see all the honky tonks. Well, you can't see all of them. There's way too many. The University of Texas campus is very impressive. Lots of historical notes at that place. The Longhorns are out of town playing football, fortunately. Otherwise, there'd be no place to stay in Austin. And, you know, there's great museums and the Texas Capitol and, you know, so many wonderful and maybe not so wonderful things that make it a part of of the whole American story writ large. So yeah, I think Austin's a great example of what a motorsports weekend can be. We'll see if Las Vegas measures up to that. Miami is a little bit different, although Miami is equally weird, but just in a different way. It's, you know, it is what it is. And I hope we don't lose those races where we do have to go out into the countryside and enjoy ourselves. But for now, Formula One wants to be near the fans and, and hopefully they respond. Anyway. Austin is great fun. And for you in particular, are you looking forward to the track walk, perhaps, if you get the chance? Because there's a 12-story climb up into turn number one. How crazy is that to do? <laughs> I've done that a couple of times already. I may give it the go-by. I'm not moving real well right now. But yeah, Phil Hill, as they call it, is, is spectacular. I was around that track doing little stories from the first time they started plowing the earth. Uh, I went track builders. I made friends with a guy who was the lead engineer for the uh, the architectural firm on site. And uh, it was a difficult gestation for that track. It, its story alone is difficult. They had to dig down 10 or 12 feet and fill it with clay because the, the ground is uh, kind of unsettled. Uh, and that results in the famous Austin bumps that they have tried to repave and scrape off because uh, nobody's happy with them, not MotoGP, not Formula One, 
but it is what it is. Yeah, I think I can do without a walk <laughs> this year. It's a long way around. Well, that's for sure. And and let's hope this weekend goes incredibly well for you, sir, because it, it should be amazing if we could get the chance to listen to your coverage back here in India as well. Because as you mentioned, so much to look sure. forward to, so much racing. And for the fans as well, as you mentioned earlier on, I think almost half a million is what Formula 1 are expecting, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. That, that should right. be quite the experience. And I hope it goes well for this entire weekend. But thank you for joining us for this particular episode, sir. I could sit and listen to you the entire day. And I hope you have a great deal of fun this weekend. And folks, thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the USGP weekend as well. If you did, or if you are going to as well, if you enjoyed this episode, you can see I'm flustered by my words because I've enjoyed this episode so much. But if you did enjoy <laughs> listening to this one, feel free to leave a good rating on whatever platform you're listening to. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks for listening, folks. And enjoy the weekend. Bye-bye.